Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind-the-scenes conversations on the research impacting the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm Katie Pace, and I'm thrilled to be here with Tim Brown. His long list of credits include designer, author, TED speaker, IDO CEO, and most recently, board of directors member for Steelcase. Tim joins us to talk about the roles leaders have in creative organizations, plus how to assess a company's creativity. Tim, there's so much to talk about here. Let's start with leaders. When business leaders talk about priorities, it's often about productivity and speed to market. Attracting talent and innovation comes in there too, but creativity is often not on that list. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's changing, to be honest. I think it's not been on that list because the focus for management and leadership for the last 50 years has been really on operational excellence, operational competitiveness, which is all about optimizing systems. And that's where most management theory has spent most of its time. But, you know, as conditions change, and and, they've obviously changed pretty rapidly in the last decade or two to one where the business environment is so much more volatile, then the idea of creativity, the idea that you can respond to situations, unknown situations, um, in ways that are kind of generative in ways that create new kinds of solutions rather than just repeat solutions of the past become more and more important. And so it's changing, right? I think, uh, I think we're going to see creativity on the agenda in whatever, with that, using whatever terms uh, people choose to use. But I think we're going to see it on the agenda of, of many, many more businesses, um, at least the ones that don't, uh, that don't succumb to the disruption that's around them anyway. You write about creativity as a competitive advantage. How is leading a creative organization different than past command and control leadership styles we've seen? You know, I think we have a traditional view of leaders as leading from the front, right? People who need to know all the answers and make all the tough decisions. And I think in an operationally focused company, that is a reasonable and logical approach to take. But if we think about an organization that uh, that is relying on creativity, um, uh, then the goal is not to unlock the creativity of the person at the top. The goal is to unlock the creativity of the whole organization. And one thing for which there is plenty of evidence, if the person at the top is the one that thinks they have all the good ideas, you do the opposite of unlocking the creative potential of the rest of the organization, you, you shut it down. So that is no longer an appropriate behavior for leaders. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't things that leaders need to do that set the direction for the organization, that provide guidance. You mentioned three roles leaders of creatively competitive organizations must assume. Let's start with the explorer. How do you see the leader as an explorer? We might tend to think that's the role of an innovator further down the ladder in an organization. So when we talk about the explorer, that is leading from the front. But what explorers do, if you think about, you know, imagine the picture of Christopher Columbus, who's asking the question, what's on the other side of that ocean? And getting the enthusiasm to go and explore and find out the answer, right? And so that's the same job that the leader has when they're playing that explorer mode. It's to ask the insightful questions, the important questions that give the organization guidance when it comes to exploring and experimenting and discovering. So that's what the explorer is. Okay, so the explorer questions and guides. Next, you reference a gardener, and that's the reference I'm familiar with. Our CEO likes to make those parallels as well. Tell us how leaders act as gardeners. The gardener is, you think about what gardeners do, is that they set the conditions for growth, right? They till the ground, they plant the seeds, they prune and nurture and water, and that's what the gardener does. It's all about setting the conditions for creativity. It's about tending the culture 
It's about things like creating the right environment for creativity. When leaders decide to invest in their space, for instance, as a place to support uh, a creative organization, then they're playing that gardening role, right? They're setting the conditions for teams to be creative, for individuals to be creative. Then there's the player coach. How does that look compared to the explorer and the gardener? This idea of leading from the side, that's leading with teams. The sort of thing, again, that you see a great player coach, somebody who's played the game, who knows what it means to be on the field. And then when they're on the sideline, they can give just the right amount of support to the players uh, to focus, to take the risks that they need to take, to have the confidence to do the hard things. And that's what leading from the side means and requires leaders to be more immersed in the content of innovation, the content of creativity. I mean, I spoke with a leader of a very large European company recently, and I asked him, well, what's changed for you in your role over the last few years? And he said, you know, I need to know more about our business. I need to know more about our products. I need to know more about our customers than I've ever had before if I'm going to be useful to our teams, if I'm going to help them make good decisions. Um, And I think that's true for, for more and more leaders. We need to know more. We need to participate more. We need to actually insert our experience earlier on in often in the innovation process or the creative process, not wait to wait till the end when everything's been finished, because at that point, there's not much that our experience can bring other than a blessing. So these three roles of the explorer asking questions, the gardener nurturing the conditions and the player coach advising and coaching alongside are all tremendously important, I think, in a creative culture. So these three roles you describe here, are we strictly talking about the CEO or chief innovation officer or other leader? Could these be embodied by other leaders within an organization? Or do these positions have to be held at the top? I think these ideas of these different types of leaderships apply at every level of the organization. I think if you're leading a team or you're leading a part of an organization or if you're leading a whole organization, I think they equally apply. You know, I mean, certainly, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we tend to have different strengths and our personalities might drive us towards being more comfortable in one of these three modes. But I I honestly think they're all learnable. And while it's unlikely that one is going to find leaders that are as good in every one of these modes, um, I actually don't think it's too much to ask for leaders to have a certain level of competency in all three. And the reason for that is because If you don't have that level of agility as a leader, I think you're not serving your organization in the way that leaders need to uh, serve today. I think that if if you're somebody who doesn't know how to ask the insightful questions, then your organization is going to kind of wander somewhat randomly out in the world, and that's wasteful. If you don't know how to set the conditions for people to be creative, then you're not going to invest in things that make a huge difference to the productivity of creative teams. And if you don't know how to coach teams, if you don't know how to be authentic to them, then they won't follow you. You won't be influential enough as a leader. So I think, I think it's not unreasonable to ask all leaders to invest in learning how to play these different roles, take on these different stances, and you know, mm-hmm. accepting that, as I said, that some will be deeper at some of these roles than others. A couple of years ago, 360 spoke with IDEO founder David Kelly, and he said, I can walk into an organization and tell you in 30 seconds, just from the look of the space, if anything creative is going on in that organization. And it sounds like some of those qualities are either going to be there or not for this kind of organization. Yes, and, and interesting, I mean, I'm guessing if I were doing what David talked about, for me, it's not just looking at whether there's you know, lots of colorful furniture or there are foosball tables in the corner. It's, you know, is there evidence, for instance, that people are 
trying ideas out? Are there prototypes lying around? Are there, do I see evidence of the work that's kind of post-pasted on the wall so that people can share ideas and talk about them? I mean, there's a certain level of messiness to the creative process that tends to get reflected in truly creative environments. You know, it's one of those slightly paradoxical things is that if we're too precious about our space, we, we don't always create the kind of creative environment that we want. A term Steelcase uses is giving people permission. It isn't the facility manager or it isn't the executives who are in charge of the space and how it's used. It's really the people on the team, meaning everybody. Yeah, I mean, we, we look for cultures where, you know, ask for forgiveness rather than permission. In other words, the permission is already pervasive to the point where teams might step over the line occasionally, but the culture is one where, you know, it's a conversation about forgiving rather than having to get advanced permission for every risk you take. And it's clearly related to risk-taking, right? I mean, if you want a creative organization that's great at innovation and problem-solving, you want them to take risks. And if they have to get permission to take every risk, including making a mess of the wall or whatever, then the chances are they're not going to be taking risks over the things that really matter, which is trying out a new product or a new service with customers. So, you know, highly permission-based cultures might be great operational cultures. They might be, might be high or low-variance cultures, if you like, but they're not great creative problem-solving cultures. IDEO has a creative difference tool, kind of a creativity assessment. It can be difficult for leaders of large organizations to keep in touch with everybody and everything. So how can a leader assess the creativity of an organization, especially when it's so spread out? Well, I mean, ultimately, I think you have to look at real behaviors, right? And, uh, you know, because we can have our perceptions of an organization and and they can be sometimes at variance with the data, right? And so what we've tried to do with Creative Difference is figure out what are the key behaviors in organizations that support effective creative problem solving. Uh, And then can we determine what levels of those kinds of behaviors, how good an organization is at those kinds of behaviors? And we look at six. Um, and then we break down those six into various components. But at the high level, the six are things like how good is an organization at looking out at its customers, at the world, and getting insights from the world? Because that really talks about how fast a learning an organization is. How good at running experiments is an organization? How good is, is it running new ideas in parallel? Because that turns out that strongly uh, correlate with how successfully organizations launch new ideas out into the market. Um, we, we look at it, what sense of purpose does an organization have because purpose really is the thing that aligns a large organization around a common set of goals. The difference between purpose and mission is that mission is an intellectual thing that you write on the wall and purpose is something that really gets into people's hearts. You know, they feel it and they commit to it emotionally as well as intellectually and organizations with strong purpose, turns out when people are having new ideas, they're having new ideas about things that the organization cares about. We look at how collaborative is an organization, how good is it at actually cutting across boundaries in its organization, because that's often where the best new ideas are found. So are you pulling together a database, developing certain measures around what constitutes a creative organization? Yep, that's exactly right. We've put over 100 companies through it, and we're beginning to see what good looks like. One of the important ideas that we talk about at IDEO a lot is this idea of mastery. When we talk about creative creativity, we talk about creative problem solving, we talk about creative competitiveness, this is not, it's not a binary thing, right? It's not like, oh, I didn't know about it yesterday and now I know about it, so now I'm creative. These are practices and skills, capabilities that are acquired over time. They're mastered over time. It's more like playing the piano, right? I mean, you only get good at playing the piano if you practice. What we're looking for is how many of these skills and capabilities 
and behaviors has an organization mastered? Is it just on the beginning of that journey? Does it ignore them altogether? Is it on the beginning of the journey or has it truly mastered them? And uh, we're able to distinguish between those different levels of mastery. And of course, that's information that then the organization use, can use to go and work on things. And have you been able to figure out if that level of mastery correlates to anything else, like numbers of new products or percent of market share? Uh, I mean, some of those things are a little harder to, to divine, but one of the things we do know is that they absolutely correlate to the likelihood that an organization is going to ship a new idea. In other words, it's going to get an idea all the way through and get it out onto the market. I mean, that could be, uh, sometimes that launch is in, a, in an external market, sometimes that launch might be internally if it's an internal tool or, or process or something. So we know that. We know that mastery of these behaviors significantly increase the likelihood that an organization is going to launch a new idea. Now, over time, we're hoping to learn then how much more likely are those ideas to be successful in the market. Although, obviously, there are a lot of other factors that come into play once, once you get to that. So I've heard you say teams or individuals that work together over time get better because they develop a level of trust. And yet so many organizations are distributed, right? IDO is distributed, Steelcase is distributed, and teams are split up. You work with people in different time zones, different countries. How do you develop that sense of trust and a sense of being a cohesive team with distributed people? It takes a while for teams to learn to trust each other. It maybe takes even longer when they're geographically distributed, which is why actually getting on airplanes and meeting each other is actually still a valid and valuable thing to do. You know, I couldn't do my job and we couldn't run our organization without using video and other digital collaboration tools. But the truth is we also put the effort in to get to know each other and meet each other. And I think that remains important. But the truth is we actually need to have our teams stick together for a while. I think, you know, one of the sort of perhaps underexplored variables in creative competitiveness is how long teams work together. Now, there's probably a point where they've worked together for too long and they've lost that kind of external influence that they need to have. But it's, uh, it's also true that I think often the way we run our organizations today, it's very hard to hold teams together hard to find enough time for them to be truly committed to the creative problem solving that we're asking them to focus on. Um, and I think that's a sort of an organizational design problem that we need to think hard about because, you know, imagine a sports team that's hardly ever plays together. They're probably not going to be good at, as good as a team that plays together every day, right? Is there a length of time? Have you seen that teams over a certain periods of time burn out? It's more about cycle time than it is length of time. In other words, what I notice with teams is the you know, first time they go through a project cycle together, they'll have a certain level of kind of trust. When they start again, it'll be, and go through another cycle, it'll be significantly higher. And, and my observation is by the time you get to the third time, it's you've gained most of the trust that you're going to get. And so after that, it doesn't mean they can't continue to perform for long periods of time. And, and there are creative teams that have famously been together for very, very long periods of time and been very productive when we can think of teams in the world of composing and musicals. We can think of like, the, I mean, the Apple design team is a good example of one that's been together for 25 years now, many of them. And so there are examples of creative teams that have worked together very successfully for long periods of time. But it does take a few cycles for people to kind of get the trust and the understanding and the knowledge of each other. Let's talk about failure for a minute, because certainly failure is a part of the creative process, right? So how can leaders help people and organizations understand and accept failure as part of the process, as part of what's going to go on in the organization, and then learning from that and moving ahead? It's unfortunate that the word failure became the term that we use to describe this weirdness, this weird condition of learning through things not going how you thought they were going to go. Because 
That's really what we're talking about, right? Um, we can think of failure as being the kind of catastrophic failure of something, the failure of a bridge or the failure of a, of a new venture which goes out of business. And there are learnings that come from those, but they're learnings you would love to have not have happen too often, particularly if human safety is involved. But that's a bit different from what is the constant process in creativity of learning from things not going how you expected them to go, which, you know, and we label that failure, but it's not really failure at all. It's actually, it's actually the richest form of learning. And indeed, one of my colleagues, Sandy Spiker, who runs our education team, she talks about how learning happens through disequilibrium, which is that moment where you suddenly just don't know what's going on, right? You're, you're confused because the world is not behaving how you thought it should behave. That is when your brain opens up to learn something. It's when new neurons, connections are made. And uh, so creativity relies on that, right? It relies on those moments of disequilibrium. Uh, and I think that's a really fantastic hypothesis. And so you sort of have to seek failure at some level, right? In that case, you have to seek those moments when the world is not how you thought it was and that you then have a new insight about it and that is your new idea and then you move forward again. So that's what I mean by failure being a mode of creativity because it's the way in which you learn most and fastest. At the same time, one's goal is not to fail at the catastrophic level too often. And I, and I would argue that if you do a really good job of failing as a learning process, by the time you get to the things that really, really matter, you've actually design most of the risk out, right? You've taken, you, you've taken most of it away so that the likelihood of catastrophic failure is, uh, goes way down. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. You've given us so much to think about. It's been a great pleasure. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that uh, this whole problem of creative leadership is something that we'll all be able to work on for quite some time to come. That was Tim Brown, IDO CEO and member of the Steelcase Board of Directors. If you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to Steelcase 360 Real Time on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also read more from Tim and see how to design spaces that boost creative behaviors at work in the latest edition of 360 Magazine. You can find it at 360.steelcase.com. Thanks for listening.